Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Good morning, church. It is good to see you all today. My name is Michael, and I'm the lead pastor here. I'm glad that you are with us. And I just hit the wrong button on my phone. Here we go. I have a timer that I've put on my music stand here, or not a music, this is a pulpit now. I have a timer that I keep here and uh, hit the wrong button. Anyway, uh, I'm glad you're here with us, and we are doing a series through the Gospel of Luke, and uh, today we're going to look at a story of a man who was possessed by a demon, and then Jesus cast the demon out of the man. So it's an unusual story. It's, it's something that, uh, that we're familiar with in the Bible, but it's not something that we're familiar with in our experience. We can relate to Jesus uh, in the sense of him healing the sick or feeding the hungry and things of that sort because we know what it's like to be sick and we know what it's like to be hungry. Um, but uh, we don't know what it's like to be possessed by a demon. At least I hope that you don't know what that's like uh, because that would be a big problem. So hopefully this is something that we cannot relate to in our own experience, but it is something that we need to learn about. We're not as familiar with demonic activity, and so we're not as familiar with how to recognize it and how to oppose it. But here's the thing. Demons and evil spirits are real. Jesus uh, interacted with Satan and evil spirits, and we see them acknowledged in Scripture. So Jesus took it seriously. The apostles in the New Testament took it seriously, and so we need to do the same thing. So... We're not going to do a comprehensive study uh, on this today, but what I want to do is is, uh, is share this story with you uh, and lay some groundwork for how we can recognize and uh, resist the work of the demonic. So it's basically giving us a starting point, how to recognize demonic activity and resist it and the power of the spirit. So let's dig in. We're in Luke chapter 11, Luke chapter 11, and I'm going to start us off in verse 14. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Let's pause there for a second. That's kind of a weird way to tell the story, isn't it? Um, it, Luke is so nonchalant in the way he tells it. It's like, it's it's as natural as Jesus eating a sandwich. He's like, well, you know, now Jesus was casting out a demon and it was just, it seems just like this is an everyday occurrence. And of course, for Jesus, he can cast out a demon effortlessly. It's not as though um, this is any particularly unusual thing for Jesus to do because Jesus came in power and the power of the spirit was on him and his power over the demonic is effortless. And so he could cast them out with a command, as we've seen him do in other stories. So Jesus wasn't wasn't intimidated or frazzled. And whenever he encountered demons, they knew who he was. He knew who they were, and they were scared of him. Now, whenever we talk about demons, um, the Bible doesn't give us this comprehensive uh, theology of demons where we can just like, okay, here's where they came from, and here's what they can do, and here's how they're arranged. We don't get that. And so we have to venture a little bit outside of what, at least for me, is something that I feel like I really have a a firm grasp on. So I just want to read to you a lengthy quote from a Bible dictionary, and uh, this is, you know, a couple paragraphs. 
So I want to read you this, this quote from a Bible dictionary, but from a scholar that uh, hopefully has, has some, you know, studied this more in depth, and this is uh, some more credible information from a scholar. Um, this is from the Tyndale Bible Dictionary, and this entry is about demon possession. So bear with me as I read a little bit more at length. Demon possession is demonic occupation of a human being. The term possession is misleading and is not the best translation for the Greek word demonizomai, which is the word that the Bible uses for demon possession. So he said possession is not the best word, um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an appropriate word. So that Greek word literally means to be demonized and can often be tr- best translated as to have a demon. The noun form is demoniac. Demons can enter the body of a person in order to control the individual's thoughts and actions. Sometimes a distinction is made between demonic oppression and demonic possession. This supposedly differentiates an attack from without and control from within. Although a non-Christian may be said to be possessed by a demon... The Christian cannot be so possessed. I'll read that again. That's a, I think that's a thing that some Christians wonder about. A non-Christian may be said to be possessed by a demon, but the Christian cannot be so possessed, for he belongs to Christ, and his human spirit has been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Demonic spirits somehow know and acknowledge that seal. Often, demons prefer to hide rather than make their presence known. For then, they can exercise control without hindrance. When they do manifest themselves, often when challenged, all sorts of strange and frightening things may occur. They possess supernatural powers, which they exhibit outright or through their victims. The Gerasene demoniac, which is a, there's that story of Jesus exercising that demon is in the Gospels. The Gerasene demoniac had superhuman physical strength so that he could not be bound with fetters or chains. He lived in tombs and went about night and day screaming and injuring himself with stones. Casting out demons or exorcism was a regular and frequent part of the ministry of Jesus. And he taught and commanded his followers to do the same. This command has never been abrogated. And the ministry of deliverance should be even more important today when the forces of evil are so rampant. Well, that's the end of the quote. What we're not going to talk about today is deliverance ministries, casting out demons, that sort of thing. Um, Maybe that will be a sermon I can assign to somebody else some other time. Um, So we're not going to venture into that. um, But I do think it's notable. Um, And and I agree with with what this author says here is that Jesus commands his followers to, to be able to, in some way, exercise authority of, the, of Christ within us in demonic, uh, in, in, in demonic encounters. Honestly, I don't know what that looks like, and I don't know how we might go about that. But I, I would agree with what the author here says, that that command has not been abrogated, meaning it's still in effect. So this entry from the Bible Dictionary... Um, indicates that demons often will operate in the shadows, and that's part of their deceptive power. They can go undetected because we, we can't see them, right? Well, I mean, we're in the flesh, they are in the spirit, so we can't see them. And so in any given situation, we're not able to tell whether or not a demon is at work behind the scenes. Jesus always knew when a demon was at work. 
because Jesus could see the spiritual realm as well, but we can't. So whenever something good happens in your life, you can always attribute it to the work of God. You know, James 1 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So whenever something good comes into your life, you know that it is a gift that you can be received by God's hand. And give thanks to God for that good thing that you've received. But whenever something bad happens in your life, it's harder to discern exactly what you can attribute that to. It could be a spiritual attack. It could be the influence of a demon in your life. Or it could be the consequences of your own sin. Or it could be God's discipline to correct you. Or it could be the effects of living in a fallen world. All of those things are possibilities. And so we're, it's not easy for us to be able to just directly attribute something to dem- demonic activity. You might know people that anytime something bad happens, they're, all, they're automatically claiming some demon is at work. Maybe. But maybe not. So uh, let's say you have this tornado that destroys a town. We can't just assume, well, a demon did that, or that's some spiritual attack. Maybe it is, but we can't always just assume that. So in the book of Job, Job 119, Job's family was killed. And we know that his family was killed because of um, a, a, a work of Satan in the book of Job. And Job 119 says, Job's family was killed when, quote, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the house. So we do know that these things can be the result of demonic activity, but there may be other explanations. That's why it's harder to discern the presence or activity of a demon, even though we can acknowledge that demons are at work and they do, uh, they do have destructive power. Now, demons are not required to always operate in the same way. So there was a particular way that we see Jesus and the apostles encounter them in the New Testament. Um, but we can't just assume that those, the way that they acted then is the way that they will act in every time, every place, every culture. Um, I mean, there, there could be any number of ways that they can operate. So in the ancient world, it seemed as though outright possession was more of a common occurrence. And we'll see evidence of this later as we go through this story because other people, other than Jesus were involved in exercising demons. So it seemed like that was a thing that was more of a common experience in the ancient world. But in the modern world, in our day, it seems as though demons operate in more subtle ways. They're not as obvious. And we do have, uh, we're, we, we have other explanations that may be uh, just as plausible for any number of phenomena that might seem demonic. And so it's, it, these things are not easy to discern. This, uh, this is my own view, this is a conjecture here, but it, I, would, I would think that the influence of the Christian faith and the preaching of the gospel and numbers of Christians praying, that does have an effect in the ability of demons to operate in a given area. And so like we, we pray for people, we pray for rulers and leaders, we pray for the city of Cincinnati, we pray for families, and there is a power that God works through our prayers to protect people. Um, and so I think that that does reduce demonic activity or at least lessen their power. Um, and so I think that maybe in our, in our experience here that uh, even the lingering effects of Christianity in our nation has some, um, some benefit of protecting us from some of these more extreme outright manifestations of demons and possession and things like that. But I've also heard, uh, and I know people in other contexts, particularly Christians operating in pioneering missionary contexts, where they will report um, 
much more uh, bizarre, supernatural kind of spiritual manifestations. So that I, I, I can't give a, a, a firm explanation for that, but it, that does seem to be a pattern, um, anecdotally at least. So there are, um, let me give you four quick ways here that I think we, can, we do see in Scripture of how demons manifest themselves or how they work. One is just through temptation. Uh, we talked about this last week, about Jesus said, lead us not into temptation. Jesus was tempted by the devil. The devil tempted Jesus, trying to entice Jesus to sin. So um, this happens to everyone, every Christian. It happened even to Jesus himself. The second one is infestation. This would be a coordinated, concentrated spiritual attack on a particular place or a particular person. Um, one clear example of this in the New Testament is Mary Magdalene, who was said to have been uh, possessed by many spirits. The Gerasene demoniac, he said, my name is Legion, for we are many. Many spirits had inhabited a single individual. The third one is oppression. The, uh, the Bible dictionary thing I, I referenced earlier, oppression, that's, a, that's an attack upon the person from the outside, but not a, a control from the inside. And this can happen to a Christian. It's not taking control of the body or anything like that, but it is a, a, um, a, some intensified uh, attack on an individual being oppressed. Job is a clear example where Satan said, uh, hey, how about this guy? Let me go after this guy. And uh, he, he wanted to go after him in order to, um, to, to tempt him to sin, but also to, um, to test God. And the last one is possession. So that is seizing control of a person to the point to where they are physically affected. The Gerasene demoniac is an example and the guy in this story. The guy in this story was mute because evidently the demon uh, was mute. And whenever Jesus cast the demon out, the mute man was then able to speak again because the demon had taken control of his body such that it even affected his ability to speak. So demons are spirits. They do not have physical bodies, but it... It would seem as though demons desire to be embodied. So there's a desire to possess a person, to be embodied, to take control of a person by physically possessing them. And whenever a person has been demonized in this way, they've been possessed in this way, um, the demon would need to be exercised. The demon needs to be cast out of that person. And typically what we see in Scripture, um, I don't know of any example of, of any other way other than being cast out by some other person who could pray over that individual. So, evidently, this was more common in the ancient world, and it is, but it's not something that we really see or hear about as much today, although I would say that I have known people and have heard reports from other people about this sort of thing happening increasingly in our day. But that is, like I said, anecdote. All right. That was the first verse. Verse 15. So some people watch, watch Jesus do this exorcism. Verse 15. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So Jesus performed this miracle. And after performing the miracle, two different kinds of people came forward. You have the scoffers and the skeptics. The scoffers recognized Jesus' miraculous power, but they did not believe that that miraculous power was actually from God. 
They thought it must have been from some evil or satanic or wicked origin. So they, they attributed the, the exorcism to the power of Beelzebul, who was uh, the prince of demons. Who, that's what we know as Satan. The word Beelzebul just means master of the house, but it refers to Satan. So it's, it's, an, it's a blasphemous thing to attribute the work of God to Satan the way that these uh, scoffers did. Now the other group are the skeptics. They were unconvinced by Jesus' miraculous power. And so they said, we want to see even more power. What you just did was not enough. We want to see more of that. And Jesus didn't do it. Jesus does not perform miracles on command in order to coerce somebody to believe. Faith does not come by seeing miracles. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God. So faith is not something that can, I mean, like if Jesus put on a cape and flew around the earth three or four times and then landed right back in that exact spot, it still would not convince them because miracles do not convince a hard heart. A hard heart has to be changed and transformed, regenerated and renewed by a work of the Spirit. So Jesus did not perform a miracle on command. Verse 17, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. So Jesus was able to know the thoughts of other people and thank the Lord that that is not a spiritual gift any of us possess. I would not want to know, and I don't think any of us would want to know, be able to just read other people's minds. We would not like what we saw, I would imagine. But Jesus did have that ability, and he was able to discern their thoughts and their motives. And he gave them two rebuttals to show the nonsense of the accusation. The first rebuttal is about a divided house or a divided kingdom. And he's basically saying a a nation or a house or a country or a kingdom, if it's at civil war then it's not going to stand. It's not going to last. So Satan may be evil, but he's not stupid. He's not, he's not going to make that sort of tactical error by attacking his own. So if Jesus exercised demons in the power of Satan, and then Satan is casting out Satan. He's saying that's a nonsense thing to say. The second rebuttal is of hypocrisy. So evidently, there were some Jewish people in the ancient world that could practice exorcism. We don't know how they did it. We do, I mean, they're, they're, we're not given that information in the scripture. But there, was, there were some who practiced exorcism, and Jesus is referencing them. He said, if you think I'm casting out demons in the power of Satan, who do your people cast them out in the power of? If I'm doing it in the power of Satan, would you not say that your people are also doing it in the power of Satan? Therefore, you are guilty of the very thing that you're accusing me of if what you say is true. So he's saying it's, a, it's, a, it's an indictment of themselves if what they say is true. So Jesus goes on then to, to give a further explanation of what is actually happening. This is verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. We'll stop there. So now Jesus switches up the metaphor again 
and he tells this little mini parable. And the mini parable is of somebody who is in their stronghold. And another man comes and breaks into that stronghold. So get this. In this metaphor, Satan is the strong man. And he's in his palace and he's got his goods. He's got his, his armored guard. He is protected, insulated. He's untouchable. His goods are safe. And the goods that he's protecting are the souls of men and women that he holds captive. So he's got these people enslaved in his palace, in his kingdom, and he's, he's got a guard, and he's strong and powerful. He's like Sauron, who is untouchable. Nobody can come near. There is no way that anybody could possibly oppose him. He's too powerful. He's too strong. But there is someone out there who is stronger than the strong man. And that man, who is stronger than the strong man, is able to break in and bind and tie up the strong man and then plunder his goods. And so Jesus is saying, I am the stronger man. I am the one who is stronger than Satan. So it's, it's fascinating. Jesus compares himself to a burglar. He says, I'm like a thief. I'm like a burglar who's going to break into the strong man's house and I'm going to overpower him, overwhelm him, bind him. And then I'm going to plunder his goods and take away what I want from his house. So he's saying, Satan may be strong, but I'm even stronger. And I am here to set free that which Satan has held captive. So in this little parable, he's openly declaring his intent to bring Satan's kingdom to utter ruin. And he's saying, I have the power and the strength to do that. Because I am stronger than the strong man. And that's true. Jesus came to defeat Satan and all of his powers to topple his kingdom and to free his slaves and to plunder his goods. That's his goal. That's his objective. And so this mute demon, this demon that is so weak he can't even speak, and everybody's marveling over this miraculous power that Jesus just demonstrated in order to cast out this mute demon, that's nothing to Jesus. That's peewee league to Jesus. It's no big deal. He could do it effortlessly. He could just do it in a cakewalk. So this exorcism of this second-rate, low-grade demon was a small foretaste of a greater deliverance against the strong man that Jesus would accomplish whenever he goes to the cross. And so right after saying this, Jesus goes in to deliver the knockout blow, verse 23, because he makes it personal. And what he's going to say is that every one of us, apart from him, we are Satan's property. Look at what he says. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What's he saying there? You're either with me or you're against me. There is no neutrality. There's no spiritual Switzerland. You're on one side or the other. So do you, see what he's, do you see what he's saying here? Everyone who is not a follower of Christ belongs to Satan's domain. So whenever Christians say things like this, we'll say things like every, every human being is born in sin. That's true. That's, that's just part of our Christian theology. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every Christian is born in sin. And what that means according to this text here, is that being born in sin means that you were born into Satan's kingdom. 
You, you, you belong to him because you're not for Jesus. You're not with Jesus. That you're born into this, uh, into this Satan's kingdom. So 1 John 5, 19, he says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the we he's referring to are those who have explicit faith in Jesus Christ. And everyone else is not part of, they're, they're not of God. Everybody else is, is under this power of the evil one. And so for people that are not Christians, they're, they're vulnerable. Satan is stronger than them. They can't break free on their own. There's no means of escape on their own. They're held captive by Satan's power. And the way to be free from Satan's power is to be set free through the Son of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who is stronger than Satan. John 8, 36 said, this is Jesus speaking. He said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. To set the souls of men and women free from bondage to the strong man. To plunder the strong man's goods, as it were. And the plunder is us. We are the goods. We are the, the, the thing, the, the valuable treasure locked up in a safe in the strong man's hideout. Jesus comes in and he breaks us out. And he rescues us, his bride, the church. He rescues us. This is not the way that a lot of us think. But our world is enchanted. And by that I mean God is spirit. And he designed the world as a spiritual place. Yes, it is terrestrial. Yes, it is, there is a, there's, it's material. But it's a spiritual world. Our world is spiritual. At least it is both material and spiritual. And so whenever Adam and Eve sinned against God, the world that was under Adam's uh, domain, dominion, the world fell into the power of Satan who deceived them and led them into sin. And there it remained captive under Satan's power, the strong man, until the stronger one came. And so whenever Jesus was crucified, his body hung on a cross. His physical body hung on a cross while he bled and suffered, slowly suffocating until he died. And then he was buried in a tomb. And after three days, life returned to his body. He was resurrected. And now the strong man lives, having overcome the greatest enemy that we would all face, which is death itself. That is Satan's power. Satan's power is the power of death. And Jesus overcome the grave, demonstrating his power over all of Satan's domain. And so now that, now that the strong man lives, he lives to plunder Satan's goods. And to rescue captive souls from Satan's domain and unite them to himself. So whenever Jesus rose from the grave, he won the decisive victory. Satan has been defeated. The end is sure. Jesus' victory is, is ensured. It's certain. And so apart from Christ, every human being still remains in Satan's captivity. Every human being is deceived or under some degree of demonic influence. I'm not saying they're all possessed by the devil. But I'm not saying that. But I am saying there is, they're, they're held captive to the strong man. And so Jesus said, everyone who is not with me is against me. And then everyone who does not gather with me scatters. Meaning that there is a, there is a role that we have of gathering more people. To, of, of working alongside the stronger man to help plunder the strong man's captives. So Colossians 1, 13, 14. 
speaking of Christ, said, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the hope of the gospel. That is the truth that we believe. So Christians, men and women that are, believe, have faith in Jesus Christ, we have been set free. We belong to the stronger man. We have been liberated from our captivity and bondage to the strong man. And then God has given us some degree of his authority, some measure of his power over the demonic realm. And so in the time that remains, 11 minutes and 50 seconds, the clock says, in the time that remains... I want to give you a few points of application about how to recognize and overcome the power of the devil in our lives. Let me give you um, four simple ways with Scripture to recognize the schemes of Satan. Four ways to recognize the schemes of Satan. And because I am a preacher and I am a Baptist, they all start with the letter D. (laughs) Scripture does not leave us without guidance about how to recognize the devil's work in our lives. And so, I mean, just these, you can think of this as Satan's got a playbook, and he doesn't have to be all that creative because all the human race recycles every hundred years or so, so he can just keep running the same plays and all different people. But he's got a basic playbook that he's been running ever since the garden. And so we can recognize spiritual attack. The first one is deceive, deceive. Revelation 12.9 says this, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So Satan is the deceiver of the whole world and his craft is lies and deception. And that's why the scriptures warn us in so many different places. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It's a, you know, you, you see this in a number of places, and that's, we just need to be mindful of that, that, that there, is a, there is a deliberate attempt to deceive us. Here's the, so what well, we ask is, what is your best weapon against lies and deception? What would it be? Truth, that's right. And what is the most reliable source of truth? The Bible. So that being equipped with the Word of God, is our number one uh, defense against deception, and it is also our number one weapon of offense against deception. So deceive, that's number one. Number two, disguise, disguise. So this is kind of a sub-point of deceive, um, but since it was another D word and uh, I wanted to read this verse, I made it its own. <laughs> so here's 2 Corinthians 11, um, verses 12 to 15. Paul says, and what, am I, or what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that their boasted mission they work on, the same team as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Uh, Abraham Lincoln once said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. 
the best lies sound true. And so what Paul is telling us here is that when we're being lied to, it, we, don't, we don't automatically recognize it. We can, we can hear things that sound true. We want, maybe even we want them to be true, and maybe they contain enough truth to be plausible with enough error to be deceptive. And so what's, what's our weapon against deception? It's the truth. And where we get the truth is from the Word of God, uh, primarily. But, but what he's saying is that in a, when we're being lied to, it's not going to be obvious. And so there, there, there is a, a need for us to, to, to have, to be equipped with enough truth to be able to recognize and discern truth from error. Number three, destroy. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief, referring to uh, the devil, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan destroys. Demons like to break things. Marriages, lives, churches, businesses. They destroy. They like to tear things apart. What does is, what is God tell us to do in the creation mandate? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Build things. Create things. Create culture. Create civilizations. Build magnificent things for the glory of God. And Satan hates that. And so he will seek to destroy whatever it is that would glorify God in the building of it. That's what he did to Job. He destroyed his kids, his property, his livelihood, his health. He's a destroyer. Number four, divide. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So this unchecked anger is an opportunity for the devil. And what happens as a result is there's unforgiveness and people divide from one another. Here's another scripture, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10. It says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. Satan loves to divide, divide people. And one of the easiest ways to divide people is just through unforgiveness. That's his playbook. It's a play that he runs time and again. And it's one that we're very susceptible to. We're vulnerable to this because we're so good at hurting each other. So those are four ways to recognize the schemes of Satan. Now let's just wrap up here with how to apply the victory of Christ. So Satan will attack us in various ways. And the thing that we have to remember in all of this is that, yes, he is stronger than us, but Jesus is stronger than him, and Jesus is in us. So we can't just feel like we're completely vulnerable and like, like we're, we're just going to be, like God is just going to leave us to ourselves and we're just going to get taken over. No, God is in us. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So we, are, we, we have been given authority over the demonic realm. And there is, although there is a power that demons have that is stronger than us, the strength of Christ is greater and Christ is in us. We cannot forget that. 
Jesus' victory is our victory because we are in Christ. So we are overcomers in Christ. So a couple scriptures here. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. He's speaking about uh, the end of all things. So he's talking about the very last things. And he says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. And those are references to demonic powers. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Here's another one. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what Jesus has done. He has triumphed. He has defeated not just Satan himself, but he has defeated the whole enterprise, the whole demonic realm has already been defeated. So what do we do about that? James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how do we do this? How do we resist the devil? Now, I've said before, we're not, we're not going to talk about deliverance ministries or, you know, anything like that. And, and I don't, I'm not saying those are illegitimate. Um, honestly, I'm saying I don't know. I, I want to understand that better. So I'm not talking about those kind of things, but I'm talking about things that we know for sure are rock-solid scriptural principles about how to resist the devil. And the answer is simpler probably than you think. There's not a secret sauce or some hidden verse that you haven't read yet to tell you how to do this. The answer is like laying out in plain sight. The thing is, we don't fight the devil on his terms. We don't try to to fight his strength with the sort of strength that he has. We fight in the strength of the spirit, which leads us away from that sort of strength. So we resist the devil on God's terms and the power of the spirit. And the primary means of doing so is to live a godly and obedient life. That, I mean, that is how we fight the devil. We resist him through godliness and obedience. So I, I will say this, at Christ the King Church, I do think we de- need to be more discerning, more on the alert about the deceptions in the world, more watchful of lies. However, I don't believe that, that's a, that, that there, there is some secret thing out there that will just unlock new layers of, of spiritual freedom. It's like, no, we, we do this the way that we talk about every week. And that's by applying the basics, mastering the basics of the Christian life. So I want to look at one more text today, and that's perhaps the most famous text on spiritual warfare in the Bible. And we'll, we're, what we're going to see here in just a second is that it's all about the basics of walking with Jesus. It's Ephesians chapter 6. So I just want to read uh, this text and make just a couple of comments along the way and, in, and then conclude. But what I want you to notice, really notice here, is just how simple and straightforward it is. And this is all about spiritual warfare, but notice how simple it is. So Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Not your strength. Strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Not yours, but his. How do we do that? Put on the whole armor of God. So it's, it's a whole. It's not, uh, well, today I think I'll put on the belt. You know, maybe tomorrow I'll try on the helmet and see how that works. No, it's put on the whole armor. It's, 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 it's all one piece. It's like a uniform. Uh, there's a Bengals game today. And if you have a guy that has the uniform on and a T-shirt, 
that guy looks like an idiot. He doesn't have the whole uniform on. You need the whole armor, the whole uniform. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. All the deception, the lies, the division, the, dis, the disguise, all of those things. We, we withstand against the schemes of the devil with the whole armor of God. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not a flesh and blood thing. It's about tapping into the power of the spirit. We wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness. The things that I just read to you in Colossians 1 are the things that Jesus has already triumphed over. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore. Do you think he wants you to stand? (laughs) Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. So the belt of truth, I mean, we're going to talk about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God in a moment. So this seems to be maybe something a little different. And I think it's just truthfulness, honesty, living in the truth. Uh, I think maybe what he's referring to here. So that's your belt, living in the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, godly character, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, um, presumably would be to proclaim the gospel in season and out of season. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, that is the the defense, where as you're attacked by the enemy, as you're feeling discouraged, um, your refuge is your faith in Christ, where you're running to Jesus and say, I take refuge in you, that's my faith. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Just, that, that word always annoys me, because I'm like, darts, I think of little darts and I'm like yeah that would hurt but it's it's like arrows and think of like a flaming dart it's like an arrow this is a a horrible weapon a thing you would not want to get shot at that's what we're protecting ourselves against and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God there is the ultimate authority our ultimate source of truth and prayer praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end keep alert so we're watching we're aware, with all perseverance, making supplication, which is requests, for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly, to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. Final words. When you're under spiritual attack... You can't fight back against the devil directly because he is stronger than you. So whenever you're under spiritual attack, what you need to do is to be strong in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord. Jesus is stronger than the strong man, and we're in Christ. So whenever you're under spiritual attack, you run faster to Jesus. You cling more tightly to Jesus. You pray your guts out. You search his word for truth. You trust him with all your heart. You take refuge in his shelter. And then you stand. You stand back and you let him go to battle for you. Let him win victory in your life. Because the battle belongs to the Lord. It's his. You're his child. And he's not going to leave you vulnerable. He will fight the battle for you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we worship you and thank you for the fact that you have all power and you tell us so. We thank you that you 
have rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the beloved Son because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place, who, who fought and won against the devil through his weakness, through his frailty, through his willingness to die in our place. And in so doing, you demonstrated your power because life in him is eternal and he cannot be killed and stay dead forever. And so thank you that through that victory, we now have victory. Through that victory, we now stand. And so our Lord Jesus, we praise you. We worship you. We thank you for the power that we have and that you do not leave us vulnerable. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is feeling under attack. Help them to stand. Strengthen them to stand. May they run to Jesus. May they cling to Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you have assured us of victory and that we are yours forever and that cannot be taken away. We give you all praise in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.